The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Oh, is it? There's a, what a rookie, what a rookie mistake. What a dummy. <sighs> Mike was off. I'm Evan. Uh, I'm the creative lead here at the Grove. Um, I don't remember to turn mics on. But I oversee a lot of the, you know, the media and stuff like that, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ironic. Um, anyway, so the other thing I love doing, um, I love being able to preach the Bible, um, study the Bible. I, I love being able to do that, and so it, it truly is an honor for me to be able to stand here in front of everyone. Um, so and and just be able to communicate the truth of the gospel. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we will get started. Father, I just thank you so much for the gift that it is to be able to gather together as your people, to worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. Father, I pray that today that as I speak, that they would be your words and not mine. I pray that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, but that you would help me to effectively communicate your truth and your gospel. And I pray that you would prepare the hearts of everyone in here to hear what you would have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, coming out of our How to Study the Bible series, we did a Q&A Sunday, which is really fun. We don't get to do those very often, so we had a panel up here if you were a part of it. One of the questions that came up a bunch in the last week was the idea of if, if I'm opening the Bible for the first time, what book should I start in? And so every, question, every gathering that that question came up, we answered it the same way. We said that it would be the Gospels for sure, and probably specifically the Gospel of John. And the reason that we signaled out or singled out the Gospel of John is that it is really the, um, it's the Gospel, there's two Gospels that are written toward an audience of Gentiles. In other words, an audience of people who did not grow up Jewish. That's most of us, I would imagine. And so that's an easy starting point there. And then between Luke and John, which are those two Gospels, John is the one that gives you the most intimate picture of who Jesus is. Um, we think it was probably the last gospel that was written, and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, it's, it's talking about a lot of different stories. And so if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you'll notice is they're telling a lot of the same stories, but you're seeing it through the perspective of different people who saw those things happen. And so what, what probably happened is John, is he's an older man at this point, he's almost assuredly the last disciple left alive, and so he's wanting to tell stories that haven't been told yet. Like that line in the bumper about how if all of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the volumes that would be written. That's actually the last line of John. That's the last line of his gospel. So it gives us a really good picture into who he, into what he's thinking about. The, the other thing that's interesting is that John is fighting against some heresies that had popped up. Um, you don't see the heresies super early on. It kind of takes a little bit of time for those things to develop. But by the time that John is writing his gospel, it seems pretty clear that there was a heresy called Gnosticism. And, and the idea there was that Jesus was fully God, but that he was not fully man. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Uh, they believed that he was just God, not man. And then later on, you'd have another heresy called Arianism that believes the opposite, where Jesus was not fully God, but he was fully man. And that's where you get churches like the uh, Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons. That's what they believe. So that's why we would consider them outside of Orthodox Christianity. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And you'll get the idea that John is very concerned with making sure that we know the truth about who Jesus is in the very first verses. Like he, he begins in John chapter one, starting in verse one. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, now, if you know your Bible, you might be thinking when you hear the phrase in the beginning, your mind might leap immediately to Genesis. And that's not an accident. I think John is, per, is tying those two things together. Genesis begins, it's the very first book of the Bible. It begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John's point here is that he, he's trying to communicate who this word is, and we're going to continue talking about this here in a little bit, but he, he, he's wanting to communicate that the word is not just something that God created. So he doesn't say, in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was God, and God created the word. No, he's saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And in case that didn't drive home the point enough, he, he, he clarifies, and the word was God. So God and the word are one and the same. Um, and, and this is it might be kind of confusing, right? Because why is John talking about, and spoiler alert, the word is Jesus. Um, why is he talking about Jesus as the word? And there's a couple things that could be happening here. Number one, um, and when you read through the Old Testament, when you hear about the word of God being proclaimed, what's it talking about? It's saying that God is usually through his prophets, he's giving them the word, and then it would be the prophet's job to go and preach the word to all of Israel. Jesus is the, is the incarnate form of that, right? Jesus is not just, he's the, he's the greater prophet because he's not just preaching the word that God has given him, he's preaching the word as God in the flesh. Um, the other thing that John probably has in mind here is this idea in Greek philosophy where they believed in the word um, and what they would call it, the Greek word is the logos or the logos, however you prefer to pronounce that. Um, but it was this idea of an eternal logic that bound the world together. And so they believed that there was this kind of ethereal, eternal idea, logic that everything came out of. And so John is contextualizing the gospel for the people. He's using an idea that they would have understood. And he says, hey, that whole logic thing that you believe that kind of binds the whole world together, let me tell you more about him. His name is Jesus. He's God. Here's, here's more about it. And you see this all throughout Acts, in speci specifically when the apostles are preaching, when they're preaching to non-Jewish audiences, they want to use ideas that their audience is familiar with in order to communicate who Jesus is. And so John is kind of communicating this idea of the, the Trinity. And it, the Trinity is a really confusing idea. When I was a kid, there, the, there was, there's always, everyone has their own story about when they were in Sunday school, how the Trinity was explained to them. For me, it was an egg. So it was like, there's the shell and the white and the yolk, and they're all different, but they're all the same. And even as a kid, I was like, I don't think this works. It's like what you're talking about right now. Um, if you're, you know, if you, or St. Patrick, right? You have the shamrock, this the three leaves, it's the one plant, um, and he never said that, but, you know, but if you, if you want to believe it, that's cool, too. It's just kind of one of those legends that sprung up afterward. Um, to be honest, here, here's, the, I think, the best way of describing the Trinity. Um, God exists in a way that we don't get to understand because we can't wrap our minds around it. That's it. <laughs> so, and, and, I, and I know sometimes that's not a very satisfactory answer, 
But for me, it, it makes sense that if you're going to say that there's an all-powerful being outside of space and time that created the world, it makes sense that I wouldn't be able to fully understand the way that God exists. Um, so we, we don't get to know fully what's going on, uh, but we do know that we have God, we have the Word, and we have the Holy Spirit. They're together, they're one, but they're also separate. That's all I'm going to say on that because otherwise it just gets really confusing. Uh, but that is the idea that John is getting at here. Now, I love as he keeps going, he, he says that in him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or, or in other words, what he's getting at is when God decided to do something, there was nothing that was going to stand in his way. In the word is the light of all mankind, and once the light is coming into the world, there is no amount of darkness that could possibly overcome it. I, I love that picture of who John is, or who Jesus is. Now, as we continue on, John is going to introduce us to another character, and this is where, if you thought the Trinity was confusing, this is where it's going to get confusing, because there's two Johns. Um, I don't know why God did it that way, but he did. And so I'm going, to do, I'm going to do my best. When I say just John, I'm referring to John the disciple, who is writing the book, and then the other John is John the Baptist. And as much as possible, I'm going to say John the Baptist every time I'm referring to John the Baptist. And by the time I'm done with my message, you're going to be tired of hearing the phrase John the Baptist, because we're going to talk about John the Baptist a little bit. Um, so John the Baptist was a very simple, he, he had a very simple job. He's a really interesting character. He, he just comes out of the wilderness. He's Jesus's cousin and he begins proclaiming truth. He, he's basically the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last one before Jesus comes in as the greatest prophet, as the ultimate prophet and changes everything. And John's message is very simple. Number one, Keep your eyes peeled. There is someone who's coming after me who is greater than me. And number two, repent and be baptized. Those are his two messages. Or, or in other words, his idea was as he's baptizing people, you need to turn away from your sin and you need to turn toward the one who is coming after me. John is acting in this way. It's a very simple message. And we're going to talk a little bit more about John the Baptist as we move on. But John, the disciple, as he's writing, he goes back to the word here for a little bit. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have, received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what I, what I love about these just few short sentences is they're kind of the entire gospel really condensed. Like, if you want to explain what happens in the Gospels, it's the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He ushered in a new covenant that fulfilled the law. It was full of grace and truth. And then that last line about how he's, he was the one who was at the Father's side. No one has seen God, but he was revealed through him. Or in other words, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And, and I think that's a really wonderful way of painting that picture. Again, John is putting all of his cards on the table right now. He's letting us know this is who Jesus is. 
This is who I'm writing about. And that's kind of how he ends his prologue. So from this point forward, now we get, we get stories. That's John's kind of introduction to the book a little bit, if you will. Um, a lot of times when we read books, we skip the introduction. You shouldn't skip the introduction. You know, introductions are awesome. Uh, but they are obviously a little bit different. So the next portion of scripture that we get is John actually beginning to tell the story. And he's going to reintroduce us to John the Baptist. And I love the way he does it because the first characters that we meet in the book of John are, is not John the Baptist. It's actually Pharisees who are traveling from Jerusalem because they want to find out who John the Baptist is. Because they're hearing these stories. This man has come out of the wilderness. He's kind of a weirdo in a really good way, but you know he's just eating locusts and honey. And he's wearing the weird clothes. And he's, he's preaching this message of, hey, the Messiah is coming. You need to repent and turn away from your sin. And the Pharisees are like, hey, good message. I'm all about repentance and turning away from sin. That's a good thing to tell people. Uh, but we need to figure out who this guy is. And so they go to John the Baptist and they ask him just straight up, who are you? And they give him some options. It's a multiple choice test that John can pick from here. Uh, so the first option they give him is, are you Elijah? And remember in the Old Testament, Elijah, he doesn't die. He's brought up to heaven. So they think, okay, did God send Elijah back down to give us this message? They ask John straight up, are you the Messiah or the Christ? Uh, and those two words mean the same thing. And they also ask him, are you the prophet? Like, are you the prophet that's been told about that's going to arrive? And John the Baptist's answer is very simple. He just says, I am not the Messiah. He just says, I am not the Christ. And what John's job was, was to act as a herald. Now, now we don't have heralds today, except like in the names of newspapers, I guess. But for the most part, like I don't have a herald following me around. I don't act as a herald for anyone. We don't have that job today. Um, but there's a few maybe pop culture references that kind of clue into what it is. If you've ever seen the movie A Knight's Tale, it's from like the early 2000s, Heath Ledger. It's a really good movie. I was all about it as a kid. Uh, but Paul Bettany's character, right? It's, his job in that movie is to declare the greatness of his lord, Ulrich von Lichtenstein, in front of the, uh, in front of the crowds every time he goes. Uh, if you've ever seen Aladdin, the Prince Ali song, that's what it is. It's the genie acting as a herald. He's going into the town and he's like, the prince is on his way. He's amazing. Like that's the whole point of the song. And then the prince comes in behind this whole procession of people. The guy in front is the herald. <coughs> he's telling the town what is on its way. The other one, if you ever watched The Office, the dinner party episode or the garden party episode where Dwight just stands in his fancy clothes and says everyone's names really loudly as they walk in. That's what he's doing. He's acting as a herald. And so John's job was to essentially say, the king is on his way. The king is coming. Make way for the king. Prepare your hearts for the arrival of the king. And this all culminates the next day when John sees Jesus. So this is in verse 29. And it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now pause there for a second. That's a really important point that John is making because John the Baptist is older than Jesus by about six months. So the only way that sentence makes sense is if John is trying to communicate that Jesus existed before he was born. So, so already there, his argument is that Jesus existed in eternity past. So the same thing within the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. What John is saying in this moment, or John the Baptist is saying in this moment here, is that Jesus had been around for an incredibly long time. Now, continuing on, it says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. So there's a lot to unpack in these few short sentences. The, the, the first thing is that John says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when I say lamb, if you close your eyes and picture a lamb, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, cute, it's a lamb. Um, or if you're a real sicko, you're probably thinking, oh, delicious, it's a lamb. Um, but the, the, the other idea that would have come into the mind of the first century Jew is not just cute, not just delicious, uh, but also a sacrifice. And, and for, for generation after generation, the way that God's forgiveness was symbolized in Israel was through the ritual killing and sacrifice of animals. And, and speaking of the, the Q&A uh, episode, or the Q&A, not episode, the Q&A uh, Sunday that we had last week, one of the questions that came in that we didn't have a chance to get to, but we actually filmed a full video trying to get to most of the other questions that we didn't get, that's coming out this week, so stay tuned if that's of interest to you. But one of the questions that got asked was, what's the deal with the scale of the sacrifice? that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, and the person actually put into the question, it seems like they're just running a 24-7 butcher shop, um, which is absolutely true. If, if you're sticking with the reading plan right now, we're in Leviticus, and everyone loves Leviticus, uh, and we're reading, woo! Um, yeah. But we're reading about all of those rules, right? We're reading about if you commit this type of sin, you need to bring this type of animal to the temple. If you can't afford this animal, you can buy this animal. Also, make sure when you sacrifice this animal, this part of the animal goes here. Make sure the altar is always burning, right? It's all, it's this very, very long list of rules of how exactly everything is to be atoned for. And I think what God is communicating to his people there is, is, a, is a really important idea. Number one, that he is infinitely holy. And number two, that sin is infinitely evil. And because we sin, because we live in sin, and because God is holy, that separates us from God. It creates this chasm between us. And, and so how does God communicate to the ancient Israelites how wide this chasm is? I, I think it's through the constant sacrifice of animals. It, it's a way to show the Israelites the seriousness of their sin. And so when John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what he's saying is, behold the ultimate sacrifice because this isn't just a lamb that you offer for the forgiveness of your sin. This isn't the scapegoat that would be offered once a year for the sin of all of Israel. This is the ultimate sacrifice. And because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, he's going to do the ultimate thing, which is lead to the forgiveness of not just you as an individual, not just one nation, the nation of Israel. He's going to lead to the forgiveness of sin for the entire world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you were a first century Jew listening to it, this, this would have been some of the thought that you were having. John the Baptist is very clearly hinting at what the ministry of Jesus was going to be. And as he moves forward, he tells the story of when he baptized Jesus and he sees the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And that's for him. It's that, it's that confirmation moment because God told him, you're going to see this happen. And that's how you're going to know that he's the Messiah for sure. And then the last thing he says is that he baptizes with water, but that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Or, or in other words, because of what Jesus has done, we get to experience relationship with God in a, in a different way. 
we get to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get to experience the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We get to experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for ministry. And all those different things are because Jesus changes everything. And that's why the series is called Three Years That Changed the World, right? From the start of Jesus' ministry to when he rises again is about three years. And it's not hyperbole to say that this is the most life-changing event. It's the most world-changing event that has ever been. And so as, as John goes on with his story, we see the calling of some disciples. And so John the Baptist is walking around with some of his disciples. Uh, we know that they're, well, one of them is Andrew for sure. The other one we think is John the disciple. Um, as you're reading through the gospel of John, basically it's a, it's a good hint that whenever John just says a disciple, he's probably talking about himself because he's being humble and doesn't want to name himself. Um, but at the, at the same time, he also refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loves. So, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both maybe. I don't, I don't know. But John, John the Baptist is walking with his disciples. He sees Jesus and he says the exact same thing. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And the disciples aren't, aren't dummies. They're like, okay, our teacher is saying, there's the Lamb of God. I want to go find out more about what he's, what he's talking about. So they leave and they follow Jesus. And this is what happens starting in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, I, I say this pretty often, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make when we read the Bible is, is we don't pause and let our imaginations run wild. We, we don't pause and try and put ourselves into the lives of the people that we're reading about. What, what, what John is saying as he's writing this down is that he and Andrew only needed a couple hours, a few hours with Jesus, and then they were convinced 100% that he was the Messiah. And they had been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. This was not just like a few generations. This was all the way back to Adam and Eve is the very first prophecy that we get about Jesus. The, the Jews would have been waiting for this for generation after generation after generation. And what Andrew is saying is, we found him. Like imagine what that would be like for a moment. And, and you see Andrew's reaction, right? What does he do? He immediately has to go find his brother and shake him by the shoulders and say, Simon, we found the Messiah. I need you to come with me and meet him right now. And what happens? Simon goes and he meets Jesus and he's convinced as well. There, there's something about spending time with Jesus, just a little bit of time that is convincing these men that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of Israel who has been prophesied about for generations. And, and it leads to this next story, which is my favorite story of the calling of any disciple that we get in the Gospels. This is starting in verse 43. It says, the next day, you'll notice that with John. He starts a lot of stories with the next day. But the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So it's really interesting. Philip is called the same way as the other disciples. He sees Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. And Philip's like, sounds great. And so he goes and he follows. And he has the same reaction as Andrew, right? Andrew realizes that Jesus is the Messiah and he needs to go find his brother to tell him about it. Philip realizes who Jesus is and he needs to go tell his friend Nathaniel about it. And what's really interesting, because again, imagine the excitement. He's telling him, we found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. It's incredible. And, and what's Nathaniel's reaction? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what he's getting at there is that Nazareth is kind of an insignificant small town in the north of Israel. Like if I had to compare it, you know, in, in our region, maybe it's like Marble Mount or something like that. Um, and if you're from Marble Mount, I'm sorry. But you know, like if you heard that someone famous was from Marble Mount, you'd be like, really? Mar wow, there's like 10 people there. That's crazy. <laughs> and, and, and I'm making a joke of it, but what's happening in this moment is Nathaniel is struggling with the idea that Jesus is not who he thought he was going to be, that the Messiah was not who he thought he was going to be. And you're going to see this is the struggle of so many people is they meet Jesus and he's not who they thought he was going to be. And for some people, they struggle with this and they eventually come out on the other side. And there's other people who just, they reject the idea and they're the ones who end up crucifying Jesus, right? Because they're expecting the king of Israel who's going to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire and reestablish the golden age of the, the, the kingdom of David is going to rise once again. And, and they, they can't get over the fact that Jesus' salvation is not going to be physical, but rather it's going to be spiritual. That it's not a physical salvation for Israel, but rather it's a spiritual salvation for the world. And, and so you see, even one of Jesus' disciples is wrestling with that, that the Messiah is not who he thought he was going to be. But at the same time, I love Philip's reaction, because what does Philip say? Come and see. He doesn't try and convince him of anything. He just says, why don't, you, why don't you just come take a look for yourself? And so that happens. And so this is verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Which leads to one of the great mysteries of the Bible. What the heck happened under that fig tree? <laughs> That's all, that is all Nathanael needed to hear was Jesus just saying, hey, before Philip came and talked to you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael is just like, you're the son of God. So... <laughs> And, and, and obviously, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being joking with it, but I, I love that we, I love that we don't get to know. And, and I think it's a really, <clears throat> it's a really beautiful thing that this is just a, a, an intimate moment between Jesus and Nathaniel. And we don't really get to understand why. And in full disclosure, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask him about it because it's going to bother me forever. <laughs> but... But for now, 
we, we don't know what was in Nathaniel's heart. We don't know what was going on. We don't know what the significance of that moment under the fig tree was, but we do know that all Jesus had to say was, I, I, I saw you when you were there. I saw you in that moment when you were under the fig tree before Philip came and got you. I saw you. And it convinces Nathaniel in that moment that Jesus is the Messiah. His doubts about this guy from Nazareth were completely put away with, with this one miracle. And I, I love Jesus' reaction because in verse 50, he says, or Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If, if this was a TV show, because this is where John wraps up chapter one of his gospel. If this was a TV show, Jesus basically goes, you're impressed by that. You haven't seen anything yet. Credits roll, tune in next week, <laughs> right? That's kind, of, that's kind of what's going on this moment. And maybe that's my shameless plug of, hey, come to church next week because we're going to see we're going to see more incredible things than these. Because of all the miracles that happen in the Gospel of John, this is probably the least impressive. It's, it's enough for Nathaniel to know that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. But as we keep going through, we're going to see miracle after miracle after miracle. We're going to see Jesus glorified. We're going to see him live just a, a perfect, sinless life that we could never live. We're going to see him die the death that we deserve to die. We're going to see him rise again. We're going to see that be, because of all of that, we can find our forgiveness. We can find our purpose. We can find our hope in God. All of those things are coming in the gospel of John as we keep on going, as, as you read through it. And, and I'm really excited where, the, where these coming weeks in this series are going to take us. But, but for one last thought, whether, whether you're in person, whether you're online right now, for, for one last thought, I, I would simply leave us with this. What, what we've seen today is, is John very clearly explain who Jesus is. We've seen him explain the ministry of John the Baptist, how his job was to be the herald and declare that the king is on his way. And then the last thing that we see is Jesus choose his disciples. He begins to start building the team of his disciples that are going to help him in his ministry. And I think that it's something that we don't think about very often because we, we recognize that God chose them. But, but we don't often think about the fact that God chose us. That God chooses me. That God chooses you. And, and I think if, the, if there's one thing to think about, whether it's your drive home or whether it's logging off, like what, whatever's going on, I, I think if I asked, what, what did God put you on this earth to do? I think a lot of us could close our eyes and we could come up with answers pretty fast. I, I think if I asked, <clears throat> how could you best use your gifts and your talents and the way God wired you to glorify him here on earth. I, I think a lot of us would be able to come up with answers. And, and so I, I would encourage all of us as, as we go through our day today, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things. I, I ask God, how, how have you chosen me? What, what would you have me do? How can I glorify you in my relationships? How can I glorify you with what I do? How can I share your truth? How can I further the kingdom of heaven here on earth? 
and, and, and we can rest in the truth that God didn't just pick these men 2,000 years ago, but that God picks us every day. That Jesus didn't just tell them, come and follow me. He tells us that too. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the gift of your truth. I thank you so much that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus here to earth for us. I pray that that wouldn't ever be something that we're flippant with. I pray that it would never be something that we just say, but we don't actually believe. But Father, I pray that that truth would define who we are. I pray that we would find our identity in the fact that you love us, that you died for us. And I pray that we would never lose our wonder of that fact. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.